0: Blob
1: yeah. okay, Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check. Mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two. For you. Yeah. I'm uh-huh. saying right up. That biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes, God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit, he's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic, Uh, and that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies, Uh they say it's not practical enough, Uh just give me Jesus, that will be be enough. That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian's not optional Cause when you talk about Christ You're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical, we gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. Yeah. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, the to man's fall, to redemption, to consummation, yeah. his designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor, his worthiness sits in throne? In the heavens, sturdy and fixed to see the importance of biblical theology yeah. the lord has not decided to keep us guessing Thank you, lord. he gave us the word providing us correction and yeah. the spirit for guidance and direction Biblical theology is like protection From ourselves and our improper Reflections so we can follow the Bible Not just our affections Otherwise we will chop it into sections And not make the connections like the doctrine of Election and Satan is waiting To slice us in the meat. if our faith Is a mile wide and an inch deep Theology is like the root of a tree Which determines how rich the fruits gonna be and by God's grace He'll breathe on us with his breath lead us in his Steps show us his eagerness to bless And we'll experience true peace death, yeah. Because we we'll we'll know, know, know the meaning of Jesus, Jesus in His death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology.
2: All right, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, and I am your host Devin Palou, and we have a have a good show lined up for you guys today. Ought to be a very very interesting show, as uh, we're going to spend a couple weeks uh, this month of November looking at the uh, looking at the topic of atheism, and we have a have a guest on who we've had on uh before in the past and has, was a very popular show and uh Neil Shindy, I think that's how it's pronounced and um, we will be having having him on again momentarily uh a couple things just real quick to to get out of the way uh if you've not liked our facebook page you can go to theology matters with the Palooz slash uh slash uh, facebook Theology Matters with Blues at uh, Facebook.com. And there we keep our podcasts uh, available and put articles, videos uh, through the week. Really, it's a pretty good little resource that we try and keep updated for people and let you guys kind of know what uh, what show is coming and things that we have planned. So make sure you, you like us on Facebook. Uh, also, if you email us at theologymatters at gmail.com. Theologymatters at gmail.com. You can get a hold of us if you're interested uh, in perhaps being interviewed or being a guest on the show. Um, let us know what some of your your areas of specialty are. And uh, also, because we really pretty much a, a theology and apologetic show, if you guys have events that are going on, uh, wherever it is you live at. We're here in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, but if you have events, let us know. Uh, um, apologetics conferences, uh, intelligent design conferences, that kind of stuff. Let us know, and we'll post it uh, in our room and post it on the uh, Facebook page and let people know that we have that, uh, you know, that that is going on so they can they can check it out as well. I know Veritas uh, got dr. Geisler's seminary in California is going to be doing a conference here pretty soon, and it's an apologetics conference out there on the West coast in California. I think they're going for what I saw there I think they're going to have Robbie Zacharias and Oz Guinness and a few other people, and that uh, that is coming up so that ought to be that ought to be a good time as well, so be sure to go to Veritas seminary and get more information uh on that. And hopefully within the next few shows I should be able to uh, have our have my wife come back and uh and do some co-hosting with me. It's been kind of rough since we've had the baby. She hasn't been able to uh really be able to be on as much. So you guys are stuck here and me, but she just came in the room for a minute so maybe she wants to say something. I want to say hey, everyone, and really miss everyone, and can't wait to be back. All right, we can't have, wait to have you back either. Ought to be, ought to be great to uh, get you back soon, and uh, baby girl is growing up big. She's going to be eight months on the 12th of this month, so that's always a good time as well, definitely keeping us busy, so... All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and let's, let's uh, introduce this show. The topic of the show is going to be, Can Atheism Support a Commitment to Truth, Reason, and Morality? Can Atheism Support a Commitment to Truth, Reason, and Morality? And on the air is going to be uh, Dr. Neil Shenvey? He's a research scientist in the chemistry department at Duke University. Dr. Shenvey is a graduate of Princeton University and, and UC Berkeley, uh, where he was a Ph.D. in chemistry, completed postdoctoral uh studies at Yale, and this is going to be a, a very phenomenal show. Those who have not heard Dr. Shenby before, uh, you guys are, are in a real real treat. So, Dr. Shenvey, are you there? Hello, Dr. Shenvey? Okay, uh, I'm not sure if that was him or not, uh, but we will wait and try and get him back on the line. In the meantime, um, see, I was going to talk about a couple uh, issues that I wanted to uh, bring up, and we'll... We're going to get Dr. Shinbe back on the line. Uh, a couple of things we wanted to bring up uh, was our in, within the next few weeks, I'd mentioned earlier we were going to be um, getting some doing some shows on atheism. One of the things that are going to be kind of pertinent to that is we're going to have uh, Shandon Guthrie uh, on the show, I think, November 21st. And we're going to do a whole show on why Christians should care about philosophy. And we're going to look at different branches in philosophy, and uh, kind of some of the some of the ways that Christians interact with some of those branches of philosophy. So, for example, uh, ethics, um, metaphysics, mind-body issue, uh, philosophy of religion. A lot of those those issues where some of the leading philosophers today are actually Christians and theists. And so uh, we want to really want to try and, and um, do a show on the importance and the need for Christians uh, to know philosophy and to study philosophy. Very important. So that will be coming up. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play a clip um, from John MacArthur, and uh, it, he's talking about um, we shouldn't be manipulating people's emotions, and and sadly this this happens a lot. Sometimes I've seen it t- at different churches where uh, what happens is, you know, we live in a culture in America where a lot of times deep thinking. Uh, deep Bible study, these kind of things are are sometimes hard to find at churches. And so what happens is uh, the pastors, and I'm not saying they do this necessarily um, willingly, but a lot of times the service turns into uh, pure emotion. And they are trying to convert people uh, for example, you'll hear maybe a sermon, and then at the end of the sermon, the lights go down, the music comes on, and the pastor kind of um, is using different words and lighting and music, these type of things, to try and invoke a response from the crowd. And a lot of this, we believe, is turn is what has led to so many false conversions. So I wanted to play this clip of MacArthur. I think Dr. Shenby will be with us at 6.30. He'll be with us in about 20 minutes. So stay with us. But I want to go ahead and play this, this clip for a few minutes. And uh, we'll talk about it when we come back. So here's John MacArthur uh, talking about why we should not manipulate people's emotions behind the pulpit.
3: Let me tell you something. Never make a gospel appeal to people's emotions. Never. Never. That's why we don't have some kind of an emotional appeal here and play all kinds of smalty music in the background. I don't want you to do anything because we work your emotions up. Never appeal to people with any kind of gospel appeal that is directed at their emotions. Why? Because you can manipulate people's emotions. And frankly, most people have issues in their lives that make them sad and if you work well enough on their emotions and you're clever enough at it you can promise them happiness and when they make some kind of superficial step they'll have a momentary kind of relief there, there'll be a, a kind of newly stirred up feeling that they have oh now God's on my side now I'm going to heaven this is wonderful and you've accepted me and you've embraced me and may not signify anything at all The world is full of people who would like to be happy. Agreed? The world is full of people who would love to be accepted and loved and go to heaven. If you appeal to the emotions, you're going to get emotional reactions. And emotional reactions are not necessarily consistent with true conversion. Warm affections, newly stirred up. Look, there are so many people who have gone through this route. I'm telling you, this is is what we all grew up with kind of in churches. A lot of us, you know, where they would play this music. You turn on television. Watch watch how these TV preachers and evangelists uh, deal with crowds. They they get an organ. They crank the music up. Somehow they get these people at a fever pitch emotionally. Then they play at their feelings. This is an illegitimate thing. It's tragic. Don't ever appeal to people's emotions. You know, my my approach to to evangelism say, here's the truth. You drive it at the mind, because all things pertaining to life and godliness, as I read for you in 2 Peter 1, pertain to the true knowledge of Him. So here's the truth. Shut down the organ. Shut down the humming. We don't need that. Let's talk about the truth of your condition and Christ's provision. And the emotion will take care of itself. I think you were all very emotional this morning when you were singing those hymns, weren't you? Was there a lot of joy in your heart? You were lifted up, you were encouraged, but that's the emotion that comes out of the true conversion, not the emotion that substitutes for it. But we don't need to do all that. All that kind of emotional manipulation. There's a second thing you never want to do. You never want to appeal directly to people's will because the world is full of weak-willed people. Are you aware of that? If you're not... Then you tell me how those phony evangelists get people to send them enough millions of dollars they can buy three jets. You can manipulate people's will to do anything. Anything, if you're clever enough, and if you create enough self-interest, right? Oh, I know what's going to happen when I send you my money. I'm going to get rich. I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to be successful. God's going to pour out all kinds of goodies on me. All that driving self-interest is behind all of that. And if you want to, if you want to go after people's emotions, you can get them. And if you want to go after their weak wills, you can get them. But if you're going to proclaim the gospel, you have to go after the mind. And it has to be a true understanding of the gospel. It's about knowledge. And how you respond to the knowledge. The church of Jesus Christ is flooded with, I have to say, tares who came in emotionally and from a weak-willed response. But they're not the real thing. And it shows up. Verse 17: they have no firm root, so they're just temporary. Temporary converts. Man, oh man, wow, so many that have gone through my life. So many, 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 many. And even when you preach the gospel to the mind, you still get superficial converts. What what finally does it for them? What chases them away? First, affliction. Oh, guess what? You told me I'd get rich. You told me I'd get healed. You told me that Jesus would make me successful. Guess what? I have cancer and my husband left me. I'm out. Any kind of pressure. Philipsis is the Greek word. If if it's not real, the pressure will prove it. That's why Peter says, and it's so important, that trials prove your faith. That's why you long for trials. Because when you come out of a trial and you have experienced an enduring faith, that's giving you assurance. If if you ask me how I know I'm a Christian, I can't tell you there's a mystical way. You know how I know I'm a Christian? Because I've been through enough trials in my own life and enough trials in the lives of people around me for enough years, and I have seen that no matter what the trial is and no matter how it comes, my faith never wavers. That's not... Credit to me, that's the faith that God gives that saves. It's like a rock. The false faith, when the trial comes and you can't cash in and you don't get what you were told you're going to get and Jesus doesn't do what you thought he was going to do, you're gone. Even worse, persecution. You're not going to take that. Hey, that wasn't in the bargain because you came in on self-interest. Self-interest. People who appeal to the will and appeal to the emotion appeal on the level of self-interest. And self-interest is going to lead you down a very, very dead-end street because life's not going to be like that. God isn't going to promise you to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous the rest of your days. No way. So when the trouble comes, you're going to bail, or when the persecution comes, you're going to say, I didn't bargain for this. And Jesus was talking to the people right there, sitting there with Him, named disciples. How do I know that? Because in John 6, it says, many of His disciples walked no more with Him. Pfft, gone. Why? <laughs> they weren't going to suffer. He was just talking about the fact they're going to have to eat His flesh and drink His blood. starts talking about death. We're saying, we're out of here. And he says to the other disciples, the apostles, will you also go away? And we hear that triumphant statement of Peter, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life, and we know you are the Holy One of God. We're hanging in here. It's because they were given the gift of a real faith. I mean, this is like building a house on the sand, isn't it? If it's built on emotion and the weakness of the human will purely predicated on self-interest trouble in life persecution in life will reveal all of that and we'll stop there and have some organ music no we won't <laughs> See we will Steve if we will
2: All right folks, that was John MacArthur and uh talking about uh why we should not uh be manipulating people's emotions. Always a bad thing to always a bad thing to do. Look at some of the points he made. He says you never appeal to people's emotions because the gospel or with with the gospel and very good points that he makes on this because people's mood changes with their circumstances, so if they're sad, if they're feeling like they need comfort, um, then they're going to be easy to maybe sell a you know sell the gospel to you know one of the things i've I've said oftentimes and it's true is uh you know me and my wife and uh, and friends, we do a lot of evangelism, and um, it's funny, because the, the people that maybe others would be scared of, they, they look kind of scary, or, uh, you know, whatever, homeless, or whatever it is, where they dress, where they look, those are normally the easiest people to talk to, they're normally the easiest people to share the gospel with, uh, because they're receptive, they're open. Uh, things maybe not be going you know, their way the way exactly the way they would want them to, but they're open. They're they're open to the gospel. But it's so funny, you know, we go to sometimes down to the the Bobcats arena and we'll try and share the gospel with people as they're leaving and and the hardest people that I have seen to reach are typically those who have a, a ton of money, who have a lot of money, drive nice cars, have nice things. They think uh, they just think it's beneath them. And they don't want to give you the time of day to even talk about it. And, uh, you know, that, that's the thing. So when we're giving the gospel, uh, we need to remember, I think, in fact, I'm going to be preaching, I think, on this passage this weekend. Romans one sixteen and 17. Very powerful uh, passages. It says this. Uh, it's the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's look at this passage. He says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So you don't have to go and do a big production with music, big production with light shows, all these I mean the most ridiculous things churches are doing nowadays. You can go to a little a ministry of Chris Rosebro, and it has a whole page called the Museum of Idolatry. And you just you would not believe the ridiculous measures that the ch- many churches go to to try and get people in I mean I'm not I'm not even making this uh, you know videos of Rod Parsley coming into his congregation on a zip line uh, pastors jumping motor you know dirt bikes up onto the stage uh, when the Harlem shake was really popular there was scores and scores of churches who would participate in in doing that this, this, this the Harlem Shake and then posting it on YouTube to show everybody how cool and like the world they were. Uh, just the most ridiculous nonsense. See, when you're not ashamed of the gospel, you don't have to go to those type of, of uh, lengths. You don't have to you don't have to do that kind of gimmick and tricks to try and get the people in to into the, the seats, because we're not ashamed of the gospel and the gospel is the good news. And of course to make good sense of the good news or to make sense of the good news you have to first explain the bad news and that's of course you know lacking today big time the bad news of course is that we all fell in Adam and that we've all sinned personally against Christ and so without kind of explaining the bad news before the good news the good news doesn't really make sense but see it's not being ashamed of the gospel and why aren't we ashamed of the gospel Well, the passage says this. It says, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Not gimmicks. Not slick speech. And see, so what happens is when we we try and manipulate people with emotions, and we try and tell them they should be, you know, try being a Christian for 30 days and see if your life doesn't change. You know, this is the thing. I know people have good intentions, okay, when they're saying that. I'm not, I'm not questioning their motives. I'm not saying that their intentions are bad. Uh, but the bottom line is that is just that is terrible theology. You know, evangelism is not an infomercial. It's not trying to, uh, to sell something. The bottom line is that Christ commands everyone everywhere to repent. Because there's coming a day of judgment. It's not, you know, try Jesus for 30 days. Try him and see if your life changes. No, it's he's telling you, you better repent. And you know what? Your life may not change for the better. Your life may not change for the better. What if you're in Iraq? Or Iran or some of these countries that um, uh, are so, or Nigeria, where they're just so dominated by Islam, right? Where... If you convert to Christianity, you may lose your, your life. You could lose, you're definitely going to lose your comfort. Uh, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to, it could rip you from your family, it could rip you from your home, it could put you in, in prison. I'm thinking of Pastor Said even now, who's been moved to another uh, part in a, I think, a different prison where almost certainly is not going to get out alive. You know, that's Christianity, folks. That, that's, that's what it is. That is, uh, that is not going into it, you know, with a false expectation that uh, you're going to have money and wealth and health and prosperity. Because Christ does not promise any of that in this life. And that is what is so awful about so much of the prosperity preaching and teaching is that it really is offers just a completely different gospel and a false hope, and they add things to the gospel. are not promised anything in this life. So this is the thing. If we take the, the fangs, so to speak, out of the gospel, when we're giving the gospel, and that includes repentance, and it, it means talking about sin. But if we remove that, then it's a major problem. We have to we have to keep those elements in because the scripture says it's the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. So by not you know, being faithful to the text, by not you know, giving the whole truth and nothing but the truth, really we're we're being counterproductive with our time and with the people. So we just need to need to keep that in mind. And uh, we actually have our, our guest, uh, he's on the line with us, so we will go ahead and uh, we'll take a break for a moment, and we will transition uh, back with Dr. Shenvey, and we are going to be looking at, uh, let's see here, we are going to be looking at the topic and this is a, a very good topic. If you know any, any atheists or unbelievers, you guys, share this on your Facebook page. Let them know. And the, the show will be podcasted as well. But the topic is, can atheism support a commitment to truth, reason, and morality? So we're going to be taking some time and we're going to go through uh, several questions. And we're also going to be taking your phone calls at 760-542-3907, 760 542 Three nine zero seven. We want to hear from you guys, and uh, we will be we'll go ahead and take this uh, this short break and be back in one second.
3: Welcome to the one minute, minute apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. The age-old question: Has God said? That question has echoed into the 21st century, and still today many people question the reliability of God, and as Christians we hear that the Bible is not reliable.
4: How do you respond to somebody who says, Dr. Geiser, the Bible is not reliable? Well, my response is, um, God can't err, the Bible is the word of God, therefore uh, the Bible cannot err. So if you're going to deny that conclusion, you have to deny one or more of those two premises. So tell me, uh, can God err? The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar, you know, Romans 3, 4. The Bible says uh, that it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6:18. The God who cannot lie, Titus 1, 2. So if God can't err, And the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Jesus said it's the Word of God in John 10, 34 and 35, and Matthew 15, 1 to 5. He said, you do exalt your traditions above the Word of God. And the Word of God cannot be broken in John 10, 35. But if the Bible is the Word of God, then God can't err, then the Bible can't err. Now I ask him one more question. If God is omniscient, if he knows everything, how many mistakes can an omniscient mind make? Hmm. An omniscient mind can't make any mistakes, not in geography, not in history, not in science, not in anything. Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, then write it down. There aren't any mistakes there.
2: All right. Welcome back to Theology Matters, and we are going to tackle the topic today. Can atheism support a commitment to truth, reason, and morality? And uh, on the air is going to be with us Dr. Neil Shenby. He's a research scientist in the chemistry department at Duke University. Neil is a graduate of Princeton University and UC Berkeley where he earned a PhD in chemistry and completed postdoctorate studies at Yale. So, as you guys can tell, this is uh, this is a smart smart guy. So we're, we're incredibly glad to have him on the show. Dr. Shenvey, are you there?
5: Yeah, I'm there. Can you hear me?
2: I can hear you good. Am I am I pronouncing your your last name right? Oh,
5: no, that's right, Dr. Shenvey. I've heard all other kinds of variations: Shavini, Shevni, It's just like Shenvey. <laughs>
2: Well, I'm glad I got it. I'm glad I got it right. Can you hear me okay? Is the audio okay? I
5: can hear you great.
2: Is Melissa there? I knew she'd be, she'd be she be You know, she's not. We're gonna try and get her back hopefully this month. You know, she's uh she's babysitting the, the little girl but she's bummed out oh, she nice. can't be on. Yeah, yeah, we're I really gonna we're trying to get her back. Also.
5: I really appreciate all the work you guys do. I, you know, I, I'm your friends on Facebook, and I see all the great posts, and I, I really appreciate all that. So, uh, I, you know, I can do that to you, and I definitely over the most of It's very encouraging.
2: Oh, wow, well, I appreciate that. I'll definitely let her know. Tell us a little bit. I mean, if you if you feel comfortable, a little bit about your family and and how many kids you got and that kind of stuff.
5: Yeah, sure. Um, so my wife, Christina, is a doctor. She works in the emergency room at UNC um, and she's doing a fellowship right now in geriatrics. Uh, that's a medicine for older people. Uh, we have three kids. Uh, our oldest is four, our middle that's a, a, a little boy, we have a, a middle child is three, and our youngest is 10 months old right now. So we have a wow. handful. Our, my wife's watching the three of them right now. They're, I think they're watching cars in the basement. Maybe beating the beat. I'm not sure. <laughs> they're watching a the movie.
2: They're, they're quiet, hopefully. So, if you hear knocking at my uh, door and daddy, daddy, then they, they escape. Yeah, well, we'll take a commercial. Well, okay. Talk to uh, talk to Dr. Shenvey maybe a few minutes before we we jump into the topic. Why why should Christians care about apologetics?
5: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think. The several people have summed it up really nicely. Um, it's that, is that you know, we're largely, and if we ever were, sort of a, um, a society that was, it was exposed to Christianity a lot. That, that's, that time has definitely passed. So there's tons of people who are just sort of in a post-Christian context. So you know, I, I became a Christian at Berkeley uh, and then moved to New Haven, Connecticut later. And both of those cities are very post-Christian. Uh, you know, they have, a very, especially New Haven, has an incredible Christian tradition. I mean, men like Jonathan Edwards, the Puritans, founded wow. New Haven. Uh, and, but, but now, it's, you know, uh, people really have no understanding of, of Christianity, what it even means. What it even, they don't even not believe it. They don't even know what it means. What, what does it say? And so in that context, you can't assume that people understand even the jargon we use. So when you say to someone, uh, you know, we need to get right with God, you know, if you say that in, say, the Deep South in the Bible Belt or even you said it 50 years ago, people would understand what you meant by that. Oh, I, you know, I yeah. am a sinner. I'm separated from God. I need someone to rescue me from my sins. I need to be forgiven. But if you say you need to get right with God nowadays, people are like, people don't even know what you mean by that. Why would I be wrong with God, right? I don't even believe God exists. I don't believe there is such a thing as a as sin, uh, why would I need salvation? So I think apologetics is just our attempt to, to answer those questions. When someone says, well, why should I believe God exists? Why should I believe that I'm a sinner? Why should I believe that Jesus uh, came and even existed? Why should I believe that he died on the cross? Why should I believe that he rose from the dead? As soon as people ask those questions, you should be able to answer. And, uh, you know, and, and I think Christians should be uh, engaged enough in evangelism that they are being asked those questions. And then apologetically well, for the Christians to answer them when
2: they're asked. You know, I remember Dr. Lennox. Uh, it was a really an amazing thing. I, it, where I go to school at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, the guy that uh, is kind of like the coordinator uh, for all the big events, uh, Simon Brace. He somehow worked it out to where we had got to have John Lennox come speak at our church. And the yeah, amazing wow. thing is, is, is our church was about the size of about 40 people. I mean, it was a small church out in the country. Oh. And so here's John Lennox. He just got done speaking in front of like 2,000 people that whole weekend. But yeah. So he comes out to our church, and uh, he does like a Q&A for probably two hours. And, wow. uh, you know, one of the things that he, he said that really stuck with me was uh, today, uh, even amongst the apologetics community, is uh, Christians, you know, some of the apologists know a lot of the arguments, like the ontological and kalam and teleological. So they're very good with with some of that stuff. Um, And he's he's speaking in the context of the Christian apologetics community. He says, but when it comes to theology, he says they're they're just Hmm. infantile. They don't even know the basics of theology. So talk to us a little bit maybe about the need um, to to not just put all of our focus on apologetics, but also have a good working understanding of theology as well.
5: Yeah, definitely. I think our our theology will inform apologetics quite quite a bit. Although I'd say this, you know, a lot of, if you just treat apologetics as simply answering questions, well, then that will often not be influenced too much by our theology, maybe a little bit. But you can basically give answers. You can, like you said, defend some of the basic arguments, like the argument, the Kalam, um, you know, without uh, you know, addressing theology much. What it will really impact, though, is your evangelism. How do you do evangelism? So, for instance, and, you know, so uh, you know, one of my like, role models or, or you know, inspirations is Tim Keller, and he has a great, great talk on this, where I think it's important to see um, that apologetics is a, uh, should be always directed towards evangelism. You're not just answering questions to answer questions. You're certainly not just answering questions to show that you're so smart, that you're so awesome, that you're smarter than people. That's, a, that's obviously wrong. But the goal is always to, to evangelize. To, to, that just means to explain, to present the gospel, to, 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 you know, to present the good news of what Jesus did for us. And then apologetics is simply a way to remove the barriers that people have to hearing the gospel. And like as you said before, uh, just before I came on, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel itself can trans- transform hearts. The gospel is the way that God reaches out to people and rescues them. And that doesn't mean we don't do apologetics, but it means that we're always doing apologetics with a, a goal to explain the gospel. And, and that's where theology, I think, comes in very clearly, is that uh, how we understand theology, how we understand uh, soteriology, that means the, the, the study of salvation, how does salvation happen, how does it work, that will inform how we explain the gospel. Uh, And I think the main thing that, and let me add one more thing, too, can be uh, often naive about theology, but I think the other thing that apologists can be very lacking, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, is the spiritual disciplines, right? I mean, I think sometimes apologists can think, I know all these arguments, and I also, I go out and evangelize, uh, and I'm not like those really naive, simple Christians who, you know, all they do is is pray for people and, and go out. And I think that's a really dangerous thing to fit to, to a mindset to have because a the, the simple uh-huh. Christian who has no answers, who gets tongue tied, who says I don't know, I've never studied these things, they if they are praying and you know asking God for, for begging God to rescue their their friends, their loved ones, as, we're, we shouldn't look down on that by any means. I mean, some of the great spiritual giants were very uneducated, didn't have any good apologetics training. But we're awesome right. people of God, God. So I think it's very dangerous to to make uh, the intellectual part of Christianity to, to exalted it above all the other aspects. It's it's one part, but it's not the only part.
2: That's very good. I I really like that a lot. I think just daily time in the scriptures too. I mean, sometimes that gets so neglected. But you know, if you're if you're in the scriptures daily and you're going through the books of the Bible you're going to be shattered and you're going to be humble and you're going to love Christ and you're going to be, at least that's, that's what should be should be happening as you read oh, yeah, the scriptures and you're, you're being conformed to his image.
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other thing too, the big danger I think in apologetics is and it's always true, certainly for me is pride and feeling um, I have the answers. Therefore I'm better than you, I'm better than other, other Christians even. And I think you're exactly right that the, the closer we get to God through the scriptures, through prayer, um, the, the, the more humble we'll be. The more we'll approach people, both Christians and non-Christians, with this deep sense of
0: joy yeah. in
5: the gospel that God can rescue someone like me. I mean, I sometimes think when I read the gospels that I see Jesus um, you know, rescuing prostitutes, I sometimes think, oh, thank goodness there's hope for me still. If he can reach people like that, then he might even be able to reach someone like me. I mean, they're... they're, they're Knowing my own sinfulness and awfulness, I'm like, oh, it's such good news that Jesus rescues bad people. Uh, and I think that's and that's what exposure to to the real God will do for you. It can, it can never lead you to uh, self righteousness or pride because that's just
2: yeah. It compels you too. I mean, if you're reading the scriptures and you're studying these things and you're you're learning more about Christ, your love for God is just going to compel your love for people. And, you know, it's a problem if you're not, you know, evangelizing and that kind of stuff, because you love people because you love Christ, and his love is is definitely what compels you. I think, you know, I think one of the best at this is Robbie Zacharias. You know, I'm listening to his podcast, heard several of his talks, and and so brilliant. such a great communicator. And, you know, you you see the apologetics and the defense of the faith woven in in the talks, but at the same time, man, he can do some talks that just have just left me in, shattered and in tears and just amazed yeah. at how you know, glory or, glorious our God it really is.
0: Yeah.
2: So that is the balance. So All right, well, let's, uh, let's jump into this topic then. So the, to- the topic is going to be can atheism support a commitment to truth Reason and morality, and before we jump into that, maybe you can explain give, a, give us a definition of what atheism uh, is maybe for those who'
5: not familiar
2: with the, with the term
5: Sure yes yeah. I mean atheism, if you look at the st- the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, that's sort of a standard work of philosophy, uh, it just says atheism is a denial that a God of any kind exists. there, there is no God, there are no gods just a denial of that claim. So God does not exist. So it's, and many atheists nowadays will sort of consider it in a different way and say, well, atheism is just a lack of belief in God. And that's a very modern idea um, that you can define the word that way, because again, you're not going to find that in a, in a prediction of philosophy. And certainly, atheists of the past would not define atheism that way. And you can, you can, you can define atheism however you want. Um, but, but I think that. Historically, philosophically, if you're, if you're an atheist, you're just saying, well, I, I, God doesn't exist, or you're at least saying, I think God doesn't exist. You're, make, you're making a claim that God does not exist. Um, and so, you know, atheism is not necessarily a, a worldview because there are a lot of different kinds of atheists. You know, uh, technically speaking, uh, some Buddhists are atheists. Uh, you could be a naturalist, that nature is all that exists, and be an atheist. But you could be a, a moral nihilist. You could be a moral realist. So, my point is that atheism is a very broad category. It's like theist. A theist is one who believes that God exists, but within theism, you have, you know, uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, you have, and technically speaking, probably polytheism, you know, uh, like the Greek religions, Hinduism is is a kind of theism, it's polytheism, but they're very broad categories. So, so when you say atheism, I'm speaking pretty broadly about anyone who denies that God exists, and although, in this talk, I'd probably be speaking more about what are called naturalists. A naturalist is someone who believes that nature is all that exists. Uh, so this wouldn't include someone like a, a Platonist who believes that there are abstract realm of forms or ideas out there. Um, it, would, it, would talk, it would be a lot of people nowadays you'd meet on the street. you say, well, I'm an atheist. What they really mean is, well, I'm a naturalist. I only believe that nature exists, and what I mean by nature is uh, things that I can touch and feel i don 't believe in spirits or souls or angels or demons or God uh, none of these intangible immaterial realities. i deny that they exist so that's uh, i might I might conflate the two words tonight, but uh, you should understand that generally strictly speaking atheism is a very broad category
2: okay that's that's good that's interesting yeah that's uh that helps a lot let 's talk about this title uh it 's Very, uh, definitely a very interesting title, and definitely is going to get a lot of people's uh, attention. Explain what you mean by by the title.
5: Yeah, it's deliberately provocative, but I chose my words very carefully. So um, my thesis is that atheism cannot, and maybe more strictly naturalism, but it can't support a commitment to truth, reason, and morality. Now, Now, notice I'm not saying tonight that atheism itself is incompatible with truth, reason, and morality. I'm not saying that. Now, now, there are arguments that that make that case, and I actually, last time we talked, I went through the moral argument for God's existence, where I do claim that you cannot believe that objective morality exists and also be an atheist, or at least a naturalist. It's incompatible. Uh, But tonight, I just want to talk about whether or not uh, atheism can support a commitment to truth, reason, and morality. Uh, So in other words, what I'm saying is that If you're an atheist or a naturalist, you believe that nature is all that exists, you believe there's no God, then you're going to have an extremely hard time explaining, justifying, and living out any wholehearted commitment to the truth, to reason, or to morality. It's going to be hard for you. It's going to be almost going to be fighting against your worldview whenever you kind of really live a life devoted to realism, to truth, and to morality. I think that's really shocking because I think one of the really attractive features of atheism uh, today, and historically, has been that atheists tend to be very proud of their commitment to realism. They say, you know, maybe a universe without God is miserable. Maybe it's awful to believe that God doesn't exist. But I don't care. I, I'm committed to the truth. I want to know what really is true. I don't want to believe these happy fantasies, these fairy tales. Even if they're nice, I'm not going to believe them unless they're true. I, I'm committed to reality. Um, and I have some quotes, here that are, that are great. I mean, so the, the atheists of the past uh, were really insistent that atheists, atheism was miserable but true. And because they were committed to truth, they're going to believe atheism, whether or not it's nice. So here's a, my favorite quote of all time on this subject is from Bertrand Russell. About it, probably the famous, most famous atheist of the 20th century. Uh, can I read the quote? I don't want to take up too much time, but it's, it's, phena-
2: it's phenomenal. Yeah, we've got, you know, we got an hour and 15 minutes, so you don't have to rush through this. Take your time.
5: Okay. So here's Bertrand Russell from his essay uh, "A Free Man's Worship." This is a, a small quote here, but uh, he talks about uh, the, the, the life, uh, life, human life as science describes it. This is what he says about, about life, the meaning of life and the purpose of life. He says uh, he describes life, and he says but, uh, in outline, even more purposeless in this, in this description, more void of meaning, more more devoid of meaning, is the world which science presents for our belief. Uh, Amid such a world, if anywhere, ideals henceforth must find a home. We have to live in this reality described by science. This is what it describes. It says this, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast depth of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. And this is a killer. Only within the scaffolding of these truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So Russell here, and he goes on, but Russell here is saying, look, the reality, the the cold, hard truth is miserable. It leads to unyielding despair, but that's the way the universe is. If you're you're too soft for atheism, well, then find some other worldview, but this is the way reality actually is. And you can find other atheists. Richard Dawkins says something very similar that, you know, the universe, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Uh, Kai Nielsen is a philosophy uh, professor. Who says, um, uh, he, he describes how the atheism cannot support uh, a foundation of, of morality. There is no morality of atheism, because he thinks that. And he says that the picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one. Reflection on it depresses me. But pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality. Because the, the moral nihilism of atheism, it's depressing, it's unpleasant, but it's just, that's the way it is. So anyways, I think that's, for me at least, I think that this sort of creational atheism has an appeal to it. Because they're so committed to truth. You say, I don't care if it's happy. I don't need to be smiley and, and pastel colored. I want the truth and nothing but the truth. And I want to build my life on that. And I I think Christians should say amen, right? Because as you were saying before I came on, Christianity affirms that we want truth. You know, we're not Christians because it's happy all the time. We're not Christians because, you know, it whitens our teeth or it's because, you know, I wake up singing Chris Tomlin's song and throwing a heart. We're Christians because we think Christianity is true and that we're committed to the truth no matter where it takes us. So I think we can affirm that sentiment that truth is really, really, really important, and it's more important than than having a happy feelings.
2: I like that. Yeah, I that like is that. Yeah. that is absolutely true. True. What so are some I, of the arguments? I
5: think, arguments? That, there, I that, I think that, that there are. So I, I want to affirm that. not um, you know that 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 is a uh, a positive thing about the. the the older atheists. I think mean, the neo atheists are a mixed bag. Some of them, I think they realize that that kind of message that you know atheism is miserable, but it's true. That's not very upbeat. Cool. Today we want upbeat messages. So the neo atheists sort of want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to present atheism as not only true, but also kind of hip and and fun and uh, you know progressive and cool and and, and ultimately can provide and can fulfill it. It can fulfill you even though. Uh, there is no God. And so I think these uh, neo-atheists are, are very different in their outlook than the traditional atheists like Bertrand Russell, John Paul Sartre, uh, Camus for much of his life. Um, so anyway, so that's a, I think there's a big difference between the traditional atheists, the paleo-atheists, and the neo-atheists. Uh, so, but yeah, I uh, guess my the, thesis is, yeah, the problem, I think, is that what I'm, I'm going to try to show tonight, is that although atheism claims to be committed to the truth, to reason, and again, from the neo-atheists to morality. A lot of them are, are very firm moral realists in the sense that they say, well, morality exists, it's real, and we ought to be moral people and make a big point of that, that I can be good without God, that's the name of uh, Epstein, Epstein's book. Uh, but even though that's true, that's the claim, my claim is that actually atheism is going to make it really hard to be committed to truth, reason, and, and morality. I'm not saying that they're necessarily, necessarily incompatible, Um, But I'm saying that practically speaking, uh, uh, on a psychological level, on a philosophical level, it's going to be hard to live out that commitment as an atheist.
2: What are some of the arguments for the incompatibility of atheism and reason?
5: Yeah, so I I don't want to sell those shorts. There there are arguments that say that that atheism itself, not practically, not psychologically, but actually if you deny that God exists then you cannot – believe that reason, that human rationality, exists. Um, And there are several versions of this type of argument. Um, So let me just list a a few of them very briefly. Uh, So C.F. Lewis is probably one of the earliest people to make this argument, one of the most famous, Uh, and this is called the argument from reason. What he said is that, look, uh, it seems seems like you can't trace rational thinking, rational thoughts, back to irrational causes. So... When we see a, a, physical, a, a, a physical effect, like a tree on the ground, we can ask the question, well, why did this tree fall? And I could give an answer like this. Well, there's an earthquake, right? There's a cause, and the effect was the tree fell. There's an earthquake, and therefore the, the effect was that the tree falls down onto the ground. And so when it comes to physical things, like physical events, I can it's very valid to say, well, why did this physical event happen? Oh, because, and I give some physical cause that is an irrational thing, an earthquake. That's not... It's not uh, I and mean, has I mean, there's nothing to do with a reason, just a physical cause. However, what if I said, well, you know, I, have this, I have this belief that I left my keys in my car. I lost my keys. I think they're in my car. And now I ask, well, why do I have that belief? And notice the answer is, well, when the tree was falling, it hit you on the head, and you passed out. When you woke up, you had that belief, right? mental thing happened in your head, your neurons got scrambled, and you woke up thinking that you left your keys in your car. Now, what Lewis says is, well, how much uh, faith, how much belief, how much credence would I give to someone whose belief about any given thing, like I left my keys in my car, was caused by completely irrational causes. They got hit in the head by a tree branch, and therefore they came to this belief. So well, I wouldn't, plus, least any trust in that. I mean, that's a clearly irrational uh, physical cause. He right. look, well, well, Here's the problem. According to, to naturalism, at least, every single physical event, every event period – can be traced back to purely irrational physical causes, even your beliefs. So you say, I, you know, I believe I left my keys in the car. I believe my wife loves me. I believe that two plus two equals four. You believe all of those things, but you can trace every single one of those beliefs back to completely irrational physical events in your brain, like
2: some neuron fired. So I, 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 I kind of on like.
0: The
2: with the uh, piece of well. Let me ask you this: with like the scientific yeah. determinism, is it, is it kind of like? Uh, like the dominoes kind of falling and just one event causes another event causes another is it something akin to that
5: yeah it's very much like it some of the illustration people use and so the final domino is some belief that you have but you can trace that final domino the belief that say I left my keys in the car you can trace it back and back and back and back and back and back all the way to the big bang it's completely deterministic it just happened and so the question is why, if, if all of our beliefs are simply due to the, the neurons firing in our brain and all of those neuron, neuro, the neurons firing are, can be traced back to other events which we have no control over, well, why would, we give any, why would we have any confidence in what our minds are telling us, what our brains are telling us? So, well, doesn't mean we should have any confidence in that. And, so that's, and that and is brilliant. Yeah, that's, so, that's, so Lewis, and I, no, okay, so that's, that's just basically the outline of the argument for reason. So if... So, the problem with the reason is if you have a rational belief, if it's rational, we usually think it follows a different pattern. We don't say what caused your belief. We say what's the ground for your belief. So he distinguishes between two kinds of relationships, cause and effect and ground and consequence. So for instance, cause and effect is I push one domino, the next domino falls. That's cause and effect. But ground and consequence is a totally different kind of form. It says, uh, for instance, Socrates, uh, if Socrates is a man, then he is mortal. B. Uh, Socrates is a man. C. Therefore, he's mortal. That's a ground consequent relationship. And he says there are two different kinds of answers to the question why. And the question, why do you believe Socrates is mortal? Oh, it's because not because I got hit in the head with a tree branch. It's because of this logical argument, these premises and this conclusion. So it's a totally different way to describe the relation between my belief and some other logical uh, argument and premises. You're just saying, oh, I got hit in the head with a branch, and now I think this way. So anyway, so Lewis argues, um, and, and many people have elaborated on this argument. Uh, the biggest modern person, I think, is probably Nick Reppert. But he said basically, yeah, if reason exists, if human reason exists, then it must mean that nature is not all that exists, because you, you cannot, or at least that, 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 uh, nat- that determinism is not true. Naturalistic determinism must not be true. There must be something else besides just dominoes falling in the universe. Um, And again, people have argued back and forth. Actually, it's it's interesting, but at least a handful of atheists agree with this argument. Now, They don't think it leads necessarily to God's existence. So for instance, Alex Rosenberg, who's uh, I think the chair of the philosophy department at Duke where I work, um, he believes his argument is true, but it shows you that, that reason does not exist. He denies that reason exists. He says, yeah, you know what? It is just dominoes falling. There is no such thing as reason. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as logic or, or reason or rational argument. These things are all illusions. Uh, on the other hand, you have people like Thomas Nagel, who's also either an atheist or an agnostic, not a not a Christian, not a theist, but he also affirms this argument is correct and therefore denies that naturalistic determinism is true. So you have atheists from sort of on both sides agreeing with the, the outline of this argument, um, even though they don't think it leads to uh, belief in God, but so they, they do think that this idea that that a deterministic universe cannot produce human reason. They
2: agree with that idea. That is, that is definitely interesting.
5: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so that's one really interesting argument. There are a couple other ones. Um, the, one is called the, the Transcendental Argument for God. Uh, and this basically, it's, they're all very similar. So this would say, look, you know, the laws of logic exist. These are things like the law of non-contradiction. You know, A and non-A cannot both be true, um, right? These things exist. Here's a question. Well, what are the laws of logic, right? I mean, they're not, you can't point to an object. You see this thing right here? That's the law of non contradiction You can't do that. It's not an object in the universe. So what is it? And when you think about it, well, it's not really anything in the universe. But if that's true, then it seems like it's some kind of abstract thing, this rule that is not in the universe But it's universal. It applies to everything. It applies to everything from, you know, know, uh, it applies to all thoughts, all propositions that obey the laws of logic. But it leads you to believe, well, there's got to be something that exists besides objects in the universe. So naturalism can't be true. There's these things that are immaterial, universal, called the laws of logic. Then you can go further with that reasoning and say, well, what are the laws of logic? And some people will argue well, they seem to be laws of thought. They're not laws about matter. They're not laws about how particles interact. They're laws about how propositions are held in a mind. So they, they, they must be grounded in some kind of mind, a mind that transcends the physical universe. So you're, now you've got, from going to saying that laws of logic exist, it's saying they must be grounded in a mind that is not part of the universe. And so and that's basically, if so you turn that into an argument for, well, maybe that mind is what we call God. God is this mind above and uh, that transcends the universe. And his, he grounds these laws of logic. And then finally, there's uh, King, Alvin Plantinga, a philosopher at Notre Dame, has what he calls the evolutionary argument against naturalism, where he argues basically that if, if naturalistic evolution is true, then we have no reason to believe that our, our beliefs are true. We, you have to choose between either evolution, naturalistic evolution is true, or my cognitive faculties are reliable. So you can't have both. And I think it's, it's it's more or less a refinement of C.S. Lewis's argument for reason. Although I mean I'm not a philosopher, so I can't I can't say it's definitely the same thing. It probably is not. Um, but those are so those three arguments: the argument for reason, the transcendental argument, and the evolutionary argument against naturalism, are three arguments that actually say, look, atheism and reason and logic they're incompatible. I mean, if, if atheism is true, then reason, human reason and and logic. Cannot be true. They can, they cannot be universities, These are laws. Human reason is not reliable. So if you think human reason is reliable, then you cannot be a, an, at least a naturalist, maybe even an atheist. Um, there are strict arguments against the logical compatibility of atheism and human reason and logic. Um, but again, I'm not I'm not focusing on those arguments tonight. Uh, I'll, I'll go in a different direction, kind of an
2: unorthodox direction. All uh, um, right, poll minds are open. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, No, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was
5: going with my notes to make sure I was in the right place.
2: Yeah, I was just going to give the phone number out real quick uh, for people wanting to call in and and dialogue with Dr. Shenvey. Uh, The number is 760-542-3907 760-542-3907 We've got about an hour left in the show so a lot of time for people who are wanting to call and and uh, maybe have a question or comment or dialogue. I'd uh, love to love to have you on the show. real real quick, Dr. Shindy, let me ask you this. Um, do, do would all atheists reject the idea of having like a metaphysical mind? Like I know a lot of atheists believe like the brain and the mind are the same thing. so there's no metaphysical yeah. uh, aspect to man. would, would would all atheists fall into that category of denying uh, like a metaphysical mind? Would they all believe that the brain and the mind are the same thing?
5: No, I mean, definitely not I mean, historically. I I think that,
2: um, I mean, there I mean, think are probably plenty of historical
5: atheists and philosophers, certainly in the ancient world who believed that human reason was, was um, compatible with in a sense atheism. It's not clear to me, and I'm not a philosopher, but uh, I don't see why you'd necessarily have to say, well, mind cannot exist. This is more of an a, a entailment of naturalism than it is an entailment of atheism.
4: You can believe that okay. you know, that
5: we have souls. You can believe that we, you know, we have minds that are different than our brains. You can believe all those things uh, and not believe in, in God, certainly. Uh, so I think they're certainly compatible. And there are modern atheists, uh, and, and Thomas Nagel comes to mind. He's at least agnostic. He, would, he would actually believes that there is some kind of, it's not, I don't know what exactly he believes, but in his recent work, Mind and Cosmos, I think, from what I read of the reviews, he does affirm that there is some kind of like teleological mental principle in the universe that is behind like human reason. So he would deny this idea that the brain and the mind are just equivalent, or that the, the mind is sort of an epiphenomenon, it's a, it's a, a sort of product of the brain. Um, that's what okay. a lot of atheists claim that, but I think certainly not all atheists claim that. So it's not necessarily uh
2: um, an entailment of atheism. Okay. That's, okay, that's interesting. That's good to know. Very good to know. Did you have some other points you wanted to bring up on the that uh, the question on on the uh, arguments? I didn't want no, to I didn't mean to cut no, you oh, off. I just I had that question crazy. come to my mind. I wanted to ask
5: you. No, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, so those are the arguments, and maybe even just a, a few of them, there are probably many other uh, arguments that, that basically say, you know, atheism, atheism is, and naturalism are incompatible with reason uh, and, and logic. Uh, but again, I'm not going in that direction. Uh, that, uh, they, are, they are there. I don't want to deny that they're there. And, and people, I haven't studied them very much. Um, people think they're very, they're very good arguments. Uh, and, but I, I, I want to take a different, less controversial uh, track tonight, which is not, are they incompatible? but are they sort of psychologically and practically possible so to be both an atheist and committed wholeheartedly to reason, to logic, and to morality? That's the question I want to ask.
2: Okay. You just say that there's the, the view is inconsistent?
5: Yeah, well, put it this way. So, you know, what if I said, you know, uh, my worldview says that, um, that, that football is a terrible sport. It's, it's a waste of time. You're better off just sitting and staring at a blank wall. You know, that's not my worldview, so I'm deeply committed to that worldview. And then I'm also a rabid uh, uh, Philadelphia Eagles fan. I'm both. You say, well, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> now, is that – is it totally – is it logically a contradiction to say that I don't – this thing is, is uh, worth of time. it's worthless, it's, you know, and also to be really – to watch football every weekend. Well, no, it's not, it's not logically incompatible. But practically, you're like, but wait, how does that work? How, how do you both say – that okay. their football is, is worth it, and also spend all your weekends cheering for the Eagles. That seems like a practical contradiction. How do you how do you fit that together in your mind? That's what the argument I'm going to make is not that I'm not saying there isn't that contradiction. I'm just saying that even if we grant you that it's compatible logically, metaphysically compatible, even if we grant the atheist that, the question is, is it practically compatible? Is it livable to believe and to be an atheist and also be completely committed to reason, logic, and
2: morality? Very good. Good, good point on that. Let me ask you this: We, um, it was probably in December last year. We had Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience on the show. I'm not. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I i, he, uh, I, heard, but I heard. Yeah, he came on the show and did a debate actually with uh, good friend John Ferrer on uh, theism versus atheism. But it, a uh, large portion of that discussion turned into morality. And one of the big things that kept coming up was, uh, was atheism and morality. So this is a hot, hot topic. I'm sure it's gonna, it always seems to get under the atheist skin. But uh, why do you think atheism cannot support a commitment to morality? Right,
5: so the, I think there are two big uh, things I want to talk about. Uh, the first is what I call moral reflection, and the second is called moral motivation. So let me talk a little bit about both of those things, um, and cut me off before we, if we have to take a break. So moral reflection—I by moral reflection, I just mean thinking about, spending time thinking about, reflecting on, meditating on uh, the moral realities of the world, the, the, the world as it really is. Now again, what I said at the beginning was atheism tends to be very proud of it being committed to reality. Like I want to live in a real world, not in some fairy tale universe with this imaginary sky daddy. It's the you know, classic term. Uh, who you know who, who sends down thunderbolts from heaven? I want to live in a, the real universe and say, okay, you know, again, I, I also as a Christian want to live in the real universe and have a real view of reality. But here's the thing: when you actually spend time in moral reflection, you say, okay, let me step back and actually think about the way the world actually is, not the world I experience in that sort of sheltered world I live in in 21st century uh, suburban. Durham as a theoretical chemist working at Duke with a wife and three kids. You know. I want to think about the, the experience, especially today in the 21st century, of the average person living in the world, the way people actually live, people think actually, people, the things people actually deal with. Let me spend a little bit of time just thinking about reality. So here's some examples. In the last two days, even, two days, I actually am the way the, to, to work in the car. I was listening to the, the BBC News. And just this morning, in the half-an-hour drive to work, they were talking about uh, food banks in Birmingham, England, which is the second largest city in England, and they were telling these stories, these, these heartbreaking stories about how uh, children well, you know, had no food to eat, and these parents, you know, single moms with, with multiple children uh, who were vomiting in the bag and having no food in the cupboard, they, the woman's uh, fingernails were falling out because she couldn't get enough nutrients in her diet. She had to go to a food bank, and, and she didn't, her electricity and gas were cut off, she had to you know, to get canned food to feed to her children. And this is in England. This is in the West, in the second largest city in England, in a very prosperous nation. Uh, I, on the way home, the same news station was talking about the humanitarian crisis in Syria and how they will see, uh, they're seeing mass starvation. I mean, they were talking about one, a doctor came on, who's with Doctors Without Borders, and was telling these horrifying stories about, you know, uh, 11-month-old infants. Who, who who died a woman that he treated who died of starvation, of starvation. He was talking about. I mean, we've seen the the videos and the photos of the chemical weapons attacks. We think, uh, and if you actually, I mean, so I would encourage people. How much time do you really spend thinking about the world as it actually is? You know, I have three kids. My youngest is ten months old. But just so I say, okay, you know, spend just. Five minutes. Imagining what it must be like to hold your ten-month-old daughter in your arms when she is a skeleton and she is screaming because she has no food in a week, and watching her gasp out her last breath and wow. this is happening that millions of times a year. I mean, so I mean, the scale is again unimaginable. But I'm just saying, okay, just take one person. This is one death. This happens, you know, tens, hundreds of times every single day. Imagine it's when you actually Don't don't take some don't some numbers, but make it concrete. Take your daughter, watch her die. I you know Parents magazine. I'm reading Parenting magazine about how to be a good parent. They have an article about um, sudden infant death syndrome. About this, this family, their little nine month old girl went to bed. They went in the middle of the night and she got entangled up in her in her bed clothes and got strangled to death. And they they had the paramedics rushed into the CPR, but she was gone. And I think, my little Ellie, like, what if I walk in one night to her room and she is sitting there just dead? And so, you know, I'm tearing up here just talking about these things and just imagining it. And, but here's my, here's my question. This is the world we actually live in. You know, in 2010, there were an estimated 300,000 deaths just from AIDS in Africa. 300,000. That's wow. 300,000 Ellie's, of, you know, my daughter. Hundred thousand of my brother, my brother, my parents, people that I know dying, wasting away of this disease, not even counting people cutting off their arms and machetes, you know, rebels slaughtering children in their villages, people burning to death. My wife's an ER doctor. I hear, you know, from her occasionally, I hear some really horrific stories, child abuse. This is the world we actually live in, people. This is not some you know, awful dystopian zombie apocalypse future. This is what we actually deal with on a daily basis. Now, you may not deal with it, but this is what people actually deal with. And so my challenge to an atheist is this. I want you just to spend, because if you're committed to reality, this is reality. This is the way it actually works. Spend half an hour every single day, open up the news, read, newspaper, find, read a you newspaper, know, watch Schindler's List, you know, watch a movie, and it's not it's a movie, but it really happened. But what? But, If you want to stick with the newspaper but find some in-depth details and meditate, don't just read it over coffee at your breakfast table while you're eating fruit loops. Read the story, actually reflect on it. Imagine if this were you. Imagine that you were living through this. You were living in some of these places. Now, here's my contention. If you're an atheist and you spend a half an hour every single day or just for a month doing this, reflecting on reality, there are two possibilities. You will either get incredibly, or three, three. One is you will get incredibly depressed, incredibly depressed. I mean, to the point probably of suicidal depressed. If you think about uh, what actually happens in the world, you just I can't live this. I can't keep thinking. I have to stop this. I'm I'm done with this experiment. I can't live this anymore. Makes me too miserable. I agree. I mean, yeah, it it is miserable. Uh, The second possibility, this is probably more likely, is that you'll just get hardened. This is why we can watch zombie apocalypse movies. You know, my kids, are, you know, we, we don't watch a lot of movies in our house. Occasionally we do. But when they see, and even, as we watched Beauty and the Beast a few, I guess a year ago, there's a scene where the heroine, Belle, is being chased by wolves, right? And our three-year-old son of the time starts crying. And I'm, I'm sitting there, just, you know, this is Beauty and the Beast, guys. This is a rated PG Disney movie. So I'm like, what's the matter? And he's, I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch it. I'm thinking, I just think, last week I was thinking, well, why are he so scared? I'm like, well, think about it, Neil. Uh, let's say that he came home one day and he'd been chased by wolves, right? I'm, I'm, watching, I'm, I'm watching him coming down the street and he's being chased by a pack of wolves trying to eat him. And he comes home and he says, Daddy, daddy how do you the wolves are trying to eat? And I'm like, what's your problem, right? Well, of course I wouldn't say that. Why? Because for him, he's seeing the movie as if it were real life. He's like, in real life, if a wolf was attacking someone that I loved, I would be horrified. I would be in tears. I'd be screaming. But we can watch these things on movies and, and this, not care. The adults don't care. Why? Because we're hardened. The second possibility is you read these stories, you think, you meditate on these facts, and you just get more and more hardened. You say, yeah, so what? Or you just say, well, I just can't, I don't feel anything anymore. And it's because, it's because we're so inured to the suffering all around us that we just don't care anymore. And so that's another possibility. Right. But again, really good option for us. I mean, you don't want to be this hard, callous person who just doesn't care anymore about suffering. But the, uh, so those are two possibilities, I think. For you either uh, become miserable, depressed, or you become hardened. I think the third possibility is you become you start seeking. You're like, I need a worldview that can account for this, that can explain it, but can also that help me to deal with it. I cannot go on being an atheist and living and I can either have to retreat back into uh, the illusion of the Western United States in the 21st century where I'm in this nice little bubble, I go to my cafe, I have my in triple latte cappuccino with, with foam, I watch television, I watch, you know, I have a good time, I watch sports, I either have to retreat back into my illusion or I have to kill myself. But I can't keep on, I can't keep being an atheist and living with this reflection, with the actual reflection on reality. So that's my yeah, first point. I've, I think it's very it's it's psychologically, I'm not saying it's, you know, a robot, can a robot do it? Yeah, a robot can be an atheist and, and live a normal, you know, robot life. But I think human right. beings just can't. We can't be honest with ourselves about the world and continue to just go on our happy way, enjoying life as we think it, as an atheist, and think that's us the way it is.
2: Good point. Very good. And you so said, so yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, go. We got plenty of time. We got four, forty okay. minutes. So
5: okay, okay. So this is the first point is simply that if you're an atheist, it's going to be extremely hard. Here's my challenge you: If you don't believe me, you're like, oh, I can deal with it. Okay, fine. For thirty minutes a day, watch. So watch the news, or find. And I really, or don't watch the news because it's just sound bites. You have like people dying in Darfur, and then you have you know Smiley Clown playing at his children's home in the in the U.S. So it's, it's, you're not really meditating. You're not reflecting on it. Take 30 minutes, dedicate it, and say, "In this time, I'm going to read. Say, read a book about global poverty. Read a book about uh, the Holocaust. Read a book about things that act. Or today, read a book about the, the Syrian civil war. And 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 think about that for 30 minutes a day, And I, I mean, I'm telling you, for a month, do that. You're either going to become incredibly depressed, or, or incredibly hardened, or both. Um, and I think you just don't have the resources to live that way in a sustained manner for your whole life. You can't. You're going to have to be one of those think Unfortunately, most of us, even in, in the, uh, my thing is, Christians don't avoid this by any means. Because as a Christian, you know, Devin, I can, you know, we want to live in a happy, nice world, too. <laughs> we sure. want to live in a world where everything's nice and happy and everyone's having a good time, everyone has everything they need, and there's no suffering and no misery and no poverty and no children dying of starvation. We want to live in that world, too. But the difference right. is that as a Christian, you know, you say, well, do you spend 30 minutes a day reflecting on the on reality as you actually think it is? I say, well, yeah, that's called prayer, right? That's when in prayer we go to God and the Bible, you know, if you've never read the Bible, boy, oh, boy, it is realistic about poverty, about misery, about suffering, about the plight of the poor, the plight of the oppressed. So whenever I read the Bible, whenever I pray, I am getting in touch with that. I'm forcing myself, look, you'll deal with the reality as it actually is. The difference is the Bible also gives us resources. The Bible says, you know what, the world is broken, the world is miserable. But one day God is going to heal it. One day God is going to right all wrongs and everything said is going to come untrue. He's going to fix the evil in the world and in us. And that because I, ha- I have that hope, so I have hope to go along with the despair. But the problem with atheism is that not that you don't have the despair, but you don't have the hope. Because if atheism is true, then one day everything, oh, everyone, everyone's going to just die and rot. The little baby you hold in your arms today could be dead tomorrow, and will be dead in 80 years. And there's no hope to say, but one day God is going to put it right. He's going to fix the world, and is going to, and there's not going to be any more death or suffering. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. And so that's the difference: is that a Christian? It's just, we're just tempted to ignore suffering, but we have, if we, if. We allow the Bible to shape our mind, to shape our worldview. We have resources to deal with suffering, to look it squarely in the face and say, not only one day suffering is going to end, God is going to destroy it, but in the meantime, I have a command from my God to fight suffering. You know, Jesus says, you are to go into the world and to be salt and to be light. You are to heal the sick. You are to feed the hungry. You are to clothe the naked. And those are your marching orders as Christians is not to ignore these things, but to fight them. And so a Christian wow. can, can fight with hope and say, I'm going to fight poverty, fight hunger, fight disease, and I know, I know that one day my God will win over these things. So that's, yeah, that's and we have, an,
2: a, we, we have an objective standard to be able to say that you know, poverty is bad and that AIDS is bad and that those yeah. things are objectively wrong. Yeah. And that's, yeah
5: and I, that's what would what, drive me he, nuts,
2: it, it, I think. As an atheist, that's what would drive me, I think – just, just crazy, is thinking of the child molesting, holocaust, these horrible things, and it's like, man, there's just no objective way to, to say that is wrong in any, you know, objective sense. Yeah.
5: And the, the interesting thing about this argument, so, you know, last time I talked about the moral argument, so I, I agree with you that I think that atheism cannot really ex- ground objective moral values So I I believe that. But here's the interesting thing. Even if we granted them that, even if we said, you know what, I think atheism can explain objective moral right and wrong. They can believe in this. Let's say, I don't believe that. Let's say we granted them. For the sake of argument, I agree. You can be an atheist and still believe in right and wrong and evil and evil and real bad things. But the problem is this argument still works. Yeah, it's even worse because an atheist looks at all of the actual evil in the world, and he knows it will never be rectified. Never. People that right. died in the Holocaust, they're being slaughtered. You know, people that are being killed by the millions in wars and by starvation, they'll never see justice. They'll never see healing. They'll never see hope. It's, they're dead forever. Whereas, right. so even if you grant the atheist you, you can believe in right and wrong as an atheist. Even if you say I, I, will grant you that, you still have to deal with this practical objection that you can't live out without any hope. You will either die from out without hope or you will be hardened with that hope. So that's just the first point. The second point I want to bring up uh, is what I call moral motivation. <clears throat> and so, again, I'm going to grant. So I don't think, it's, I don't think atheism can uh, explain or ground objective moral values and duties. I don't think that's true. But let's say okay, I grant that. I say, okay, you're an atheist. You believe that you can have morality, you can have good and evil as real objective things. I say, okay, I'll grant you that. So i want to ask a different question. What about moral motivation? So there are things that the atheists uh, believe are good and evil. So, you know, I mean, obviously, atheists who are moral realists, who value morality, uh, believe that there are some things that are, that are wrong. A yeah, simple example, child molestation, right? right? But there are other things that, I mean, most of us aren't tempted to molest children. Uh, but there are other things that I think the atheists would say, well, that's wrong, too. Uh, and, but we are somewhat tempted. So, for instance, a, a good thing would be rape. Or at least, if you do, "Well, I would," I just, I'm never tempted to rape. I think mean, that's probably true of me. I would, uh, I just uh, don't face that temptation. But so at least say uh, the temptation to um, to take advantage of women, right? To 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 fulfill your sexual desires, uh, even though the woman's going to regret it. To take advantage of people to get money from them, to get sex from them. Uh, at, at some point, I think maybe it's at some point I have to say, "Well, yeah, there are certain things that I know are wrong, but I have at least some temptation to do them. Something, right?" Even if things as minor as, like, cheating on your taxes, in, in minor shoplifting, there are things that I think no thinking person would say, I, I never violate my conscience, never. I never do. I always do what's right. And no one who no one really is self-aware is going to say that. We all face temptations, even if we're atheists. We say there are things that I know they're wrong, but I'm tempted to do them. Okay, here's my question. Mold motivation. You're an atheist. You believe God does not exist. You believe that when you die, you just rot. You cease to exist. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no reward. There's no punishment. There's nothing right after death, nothing. Okay, again, take, here's my challenge to you. Every day for a month, think about some temptation you face. Let's say that you are, you know, you you. I, um, I know that stealing from people is wrong, but there's an actual opportunity that I have to, to steal from my parents, from, uh, I don't know, a friend. I could just be owned the I could be a lie a little bit and make some money off of it. It's a temptation. Okay, take that temptation. Now, in your mind, I want you to hold up that temptation, like say, I have a temptation to steal this money. I know it's dishonest. I shouldn't do it, but it's, it's possible. Okay? But think about that temptation. Think about all of the, the nice things you can do with the money, how you like money. You wish you could have more of it. At the same time, think about this fact, which is true. That's true. You are tempted. This would be nice to have money. You like money. That's all true. That's fine. You know, money's not inherently evil. The other thing I want you to think about is this. When I die, I will rot. When the other person dies uh, from whom I'm stealing money, uh, they will rot. There is no punishment. There is no reward. There's no one to hold me accountable. I'm, I, I'm, I'll probably, I will, if I do this cleverly, I'll never be found out, never catch me, I'll never go to jail, okay? So in your mind... Think about both those things. One, I like money. I can have this money. Uh, and no one would know about it. i never get caught. And two, uh, and, uh, there's going to be no divine punishment, no divine reward. No one will ever know. No. Keep thinking about those things a half an hour every day for a month. And then I want to ask you a question. After that month, do you think you'll be more likely to resist temptation or less? More or less. I'm not saying you're going to. You think more or less. I can't believe anyone would say, well, I'll be more likely to resist it. I think, no. You know, when you think about it, no one's going to catch me. You know, there's, there's no divine punishment. There's no divine reward. I mean, even the person themselves might not find out. I'm just, where's my money? I don't know. So I didn't have as much as I thought. You have to say, I'll be less inclined to resist the temptation. I'll be more likely to get into it. Now, when you multiply that by all of the temptations that we face on a daily basis, and, I, and, I, and here's what I think, again, being a Christian it's actually a lot harder because a Christian will recognize a lot more things as temptations than an atheist is likely to. So for a Christian, for instance, uh, will say, you know what, not just adultery and rape. These are sins, obviously. Rape is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Sure, Christians will say, absolutely. But for a Christian, Jesus says even lust is a sin. Uh, right. so, and not only that not only pornography is a sin, even looking at racy magazine ads, right? I open up Parents Magazine, I see women half-naked, right? So even those things, when I look at a woman in a, in a magazine, I can say, look, you cannot, don't lust after her, you know, don't, don't fantasize about it. But even those little things, I think most atheists would say, well, who cares about that? It? it's a minor thing. But for a Christian, even those things are a sin. So, again, it's, it's pretty hard. Are, you're, you're, the Christian, I think, will, will recognize a lot more temptation. But even atheists recognize some. But if you consistently, for an entire month, think about all the temptations you face, all of the trade-offs that are made between doing what's right and doing what's easy or doing what's pleasurable to you, all the trade-offs, and then reminding yourself there is no judgment, there is no accountability. In the end, no one's going to say, you shouldn't have done this. You know, no one's going to know about it. You are going to gradually, gradually, gradually lose your moral motivation. I think it's inevitable. It's, I'm not saying it's because you're bad. It's because you're a terrible atheist. I'm just saying that's psychologically how we work. When there's nothing, and, 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 I, and, and you'd say, well, I really believe in doing what's right. I'm saying, okay, I, I, you know, I do too, but I think that uh, it, this is, a, I think, okay, I grant that some these are really, really, really committed to morality. And this is where, the, and this is where again, the first part comes in. Well, you, know, you just can't deal with the state of the world as it is. It's broken, it's fallen, it's evil. But I think that if you're even slightly uh, tempted, to do certain things, you've got to have an incredibly strong will, especially in the case of absolutely no accountability, to say, I'm going to cling to this. And, and more than that, I've already said, I don't think that, uh, frankly, that atheism can explain why certain things are good and bad. I mean, <laughs> start apart from that, uh, I think, especially when atheists are thinking, well, wait a minute, why again do I think that stealing this money is, is, is objectively wrong? I mean, is it really wrong? I think very quickly you're going to think into that thinking and say, wait a minute, I'm an atheist. There's something really wrong about stealing this money. I, I, what, there's not really anyone holding me accountable. There's not really a basis for saying this is objectively wrong. I mean, who, who determines that? So I, all I'm saying is that psychologically, again, I think it's going to be very hard for an atheist to consistently reflect on the inevitability of death, the absence of any kind of accountability at all, either in this life or, or in any kind of eternity, to maintain a commitment to morality. To say, I'm going to think about, and again, this is the reality we're talking about. This is saying, actually thinking about the fact that, you know what, I'm never gonna be caught for this crime. I'm not gonna be caught, That's just the truth, that's reality. The other reality is I'm gonna die, I'm gonna rot, all these people are gonna rot, it's not gonna mean anything in a, a million years, the universe is gonna go on as if nothing ever happened. It's gonna be hard to maintain that moral outlook in the face of uh, the re- reality, uh, that kind of reflection.
2: Let me ask you this, because uh, you, you kind of briefly hit on it, but I know that it's going to come up, of course. But so, are are, are we saying then that uh, atheists cannot be moral people?
5: No, definitely not. And so I made this clear also last, last time I came on the show. Atheists always want to say when when you make an argument about morality, the immediate retort is, "Well, you know, are you saying I can't be a, I can't be a moral person? Are you saying I can't value morality?" And I'm saying absolutely not. I mean, the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says. That all people know good and evil in their hearts. So God gives us a conscience. It's not perfect. It's warped, like it's corrupted, but it's there. We know certain things are good. We know certain things are bad. And the Bible says you all know that. So it's the Bible affirms it, that all of us know right and wrong, and it also affirms that we can do good and evil things. Now it's relative. None of us are perfectly good, of, and we'll get to this in the end, I think. Uh, but you know we can recognize things that, that people do, whether they're Christians or, or Muslims or Jews or atheists, and say those are good things. When you feed a hungry person, you're doing an objectively good thing. doesn't mean you're, you're, uh, you know, that, that God has forgiven you. It doesn't mean that you're perfectly good. But it's God's common grace. This is a common concept. God's common grace to people is the way that he allows us to, to do good action, even though we are, are sinners ourselves. Um, so I'm not saying at all. And, and I think any Christian who goes around to atheist saying, you're an atheist, therefore, you're, you're a bad person, you're an awful person, you're a, you know, you're, you're, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person, you don't really understand the gospel. <laughs> you, you know, you're, if, if you think you separate the world into good people and bad people, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of right. I'll tell you that the good people, the bad people are all of us, the good person is Jesus, right? That's how you separate the world into good and bad people. There's Jesus and everyone else. So if you're a Christian going around saying, these terrible atheists are so bad, I think you really don't understand the, the depth of, of, our, of our sin. Um, or the goodness of God. Uh, so I'm definitely not saying that atheists cannot do moral actions or that they can't even value morality. Um, you can say as an atheist, I value compassion. I value uh, charity. I value empathy. I value uh, making other people happy. And then you can value those things. But number one, that I would argue that those things are subjective. Those are your personal preferences. Uh, so it's like saying, I value uh, the Red Sox. I value the Jaguars. I value pickles. I value cream cheese. These are my personal subjective values, my personal uh, things that I like. But I think it, as I said last time, it's, it's hard to explain why these are objectively binding on all people. Um, uh, and the second thing I actually, I have to ask atheists. So atheists, you know, I, I understand that like a lot of people, when you hear people, Christians talking about a moral argument, atheists immediately say, well, are you saying I'm not a good person? Are you saying I can't be moral? And I understand why they might say that. But here's my question well, why do you care about being moral, right? I mean, many atheists will, in the same breath, they'll say, are you saying I can't be moral? Then in the next sentence, they'll say, well, anyway, there's no such thing as objective moral good and evil. Those things are all subjective. They're human constructs. They're, they're, they're relative to society. That, that's extremely odd to me. On the one hand, you get really upset when someone says, even if you think someone even suggests that you are not moral, which I'm not doing. But then on the other hand, you say, well, it's all an illusion anyway. Well, well, which is it? It's an illusion. Why do you care whether I think you're moral or not, right? If you're like saying you don't believe in the Easter money? well, I don't believe in the Easter money. Well, if it's just a a fantasy, why care anyway? That's one question I have to ask. And there are atheists who are moral realists who believe that good and evil exist objectively, but plenty I've met don't. So to them, I would ask, why do you get so upset when Christians question whether or not you're moral? It's all an illusion, right? Uh, So, but yeah, just to be very clear, I'm not claiming that atheists cannot. Uh, do moral actions and, and they cannot value being a good person. I'm just saying that psychologically, practically, it's very hard to live consistently with a with, uh, valuing of morality and with your belief that when we die we rot, uh, but that the world is an awful, awful, awful place, uh, and it, just, it is that way. And actually thinking about that every day, it's very hard to think about those things and be committed to every day holding those truths, those real truths with no one disputes, holding those truths before your mind. If you do that, I think you're going to have, it's going to lead to some very, very negative consequences. Uh, that, and then the only solution is either to become very hardened or to, be, to go back into a fantasy world um, and, and say, well, I'm not going to think about these things anymore. I'm done. I'm going to spend my time reading Cosmopolitan Magazine and going to Starbucks. Um, that's sort of the, the option that I think most of us take. And, and, and as Christians, too, it's always temptation. We're always tempted to avoid reality, live in our little bubble. Uh, and, and, and not have to deal with moral issues, uh, that's, that's what all of us face. The difference is Christians, one, have resources for hope. We can say, you know, one day God is going to destroy evil, and one day all of the tears are going to be wiped away, and, uh, you know, they're be, the world's going to be fixed. And number two, there is accountability. Now, for Christians, uh, you know, we have been forgiven. We're not going to be destroyed and judged for our sin, but God is still seeing our sin. We are still sitting in the face of a holy God, and we are separating ourselves from fellowship. There, there is an active accountability for our sin, even if we're not going to be uh, set, you know, condemned for it in the end. But we still, and it grieves us um, because, you know, because we love God, because we want to please him. That's why our sin grieves him. That's why we are always, as Christians, we ought to be examining ourselves and saying, what areas in my life, are areas of inconsistency. They are, they are there, absolutely. There are areas of sin, of darkness, of inconsistency, of evil. In my life right now, please, God, show them to me. Give me a pure heart. Cleanse me from all my sin and heal me because I want to live a good life. But again, idiots can't have that source of accountability in their lives because they don't believe that God exists. There is no accountability. Neil, what do
2: you, what do you say to the, the Christians that say, uh, one can, if, if a person does not have the Bible or has not read the Bible, uh, that they can't know morality. Because I I've run into that. I'm a good Reformed Baptist guy myself, and sometimes I see this. Uh, sadly, uh, sometimes even within the Reformed community, that what, unless what people of... have the... go
5: ahead, what, what do they what do they say to Romans one? I mean, Romans one says about. The, the Greeks at the time who were, you know, they were not monotheists. They weren't even monotheists. They didn't, some of them were, even, were atheists. Uh, but they said right. that, you know, they know what's right and wrong. And they actually, you know, Paul even uses that fact to say, that's why it's so bad. It's not that they're totally ignorant. They're like, I have no idea that these things were wrong. He says, they know it's wrong. They know they shouldn't do it. And they do it anyway. They, up, right. they, they approve of people who do it. That's right. Romans one, what? one twenty through 25. Maybe I, this is off the top of my head. Um, yeah. But he goes paragraph on this this very subject. So I, I if you asked them what do you what do you make of that statement?
2: Yeah, I, I have. I've I have asked that and they actually the the people I've talked to actually take Romans one eighteen through twenty five to mean that uh you know, it's talking about everybody knows that God exists. They don't take that, it's just general theism, but it's actually the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's like, you I don't know. Right.
5: He's talking about the jet gen- Okay, anyway, well, this is probably off the topic. But yeah, he's, I mean, I, I would just recommend that they, they, they look at their exegesis more carefully because he's talking about, in Romans 1 is all about the Greeks, the Gentiles, who are not right. polytheists or they're atheists. Um, and, and the interesting is actually that if they were to interpret that, so they're saying that people who know, basically, people who know that Christianity is true are being held accountable by God for being bad. Right. That's so weird because the whole, and actually this is going to really mess up with their theology because Romans 1, normally the way, again, all people think they've read it, I mean certainly all Reformed people definitely have read it, is to say, that it's God holding all the world accountable. All people know that God exists. They know that there's right and wrong, and they choose to do what's wrong, even though they know it's wrong. And so if you say that right. well, only a way of to people who've been exposed to Christianity, you're actually eviscerating the entire argument Paul's making. And and you can tell it's the, it's the Greeks in Romans 1 because in Romans 2 he turns to Jews. And if you look at Romans, the whole book of Romans, it's always the two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. So right. I, 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 I would just point them to some good commentaries on on
2: Romans because I just don't think that yeah. there's so many problems with that view. Yeah. Just to be clear, too, yeah, I, again, I'm a good you know reform guy myself, so I'm not saying that comes that just comes from the uninformed. Uh, some of the reformed people that are just so diehard presuppositional, and I don't even think they even that's understand true. the the decent presuppositional. Uh, method, but I just yeah, I mean I've, I've heard that a lot. Well, if they don't have a Bible, then how can they be moral and these type of things? But
0: um, um, and, and no,
2: I mean, yeah. oh, go ahead, Neil.
5: I was going to say this is the, this is why one of the um, the catch cries of the Reformation was "Semper Reformanda," which means always reforming. They the, reform, the reformers didn't want to just throw out all of theology prior to the Reformation. They certainly didn't. They saw themselves as building on uh, the beliefs of the, the, the early Christian church, the Christic authors, but they also recognized that all of our beliefs have to be grounded in Scripture. We always have to always consciously say, I need to reform my beliefs to what the Bible teaches, not just say, well, this, this is what I believe, and so-and-so taught it to me, and, and therefore it must be true, but I always say, but wait a minute does this really fit with what the Bible says? Is it really compatible with what Scripture teaches? And, and if, in this instance, for instance, I'd say, uh, it just seems like they're really missing, they, they have like a, a, where they really, they believe this certain doctrine, and they, they're trying to get Scripture to fit that doctrine. And it really seems to me that, that it's going completely contrary to what Paul's whole argument is in Romans 1 to 3. Um, but yeah, so I would, I would just, you know, um, I would just get them a, you know, a good commentary on Romans, and and, and, and but urge them too to say, um, point out that, again, Protestant the reformers were very adamant about going back to Scripture and, and not letting any sort of overarching view uh, determine what Scripture says. Not saying, well, I know this this doctrine is true, therefore, I have to find Scripture has to be compatible with it but instead we should always read scripture and say, am I be willing to say, you know, maybe the doctrines that I held are, are not true, maybe, maybe reform my views to scripture, and make sure that, they're, that I'm getting them from there, not just sort of adopting these things because my pastor told me or because, um, you know, some certain brand of mm, theology
2: tells me that this is true. Anyway,
5: is, I would just give him a good commentary and, and, and ask, the, ask the questions like I was asking. Ask like, well, okay, one. So okay, you know, if it's only people who have the Bible, uh, why does he talk about all men everywhere in, in Romans three? And why does he always talk about Greeks and, and Jews? And I again it's gonna kind of run into a you know, run into a lot of problems, uh in my opinion, kinda of make that view fit with
2: Romans one anyway,
5: yeah,
2: three. <laughs> oh that's good. That is that is very good. So we we've got about so twenty minutes or so left in the show. Seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven, seven six zero five four two Three nine oh seven would love to hear from you it's funny this next question you know i, uh, I actually saw the other day on a uh, on a skeptic uh, website about are uh, we saying that that Christians are only motivated to be moral because they're they're in fear of hell or that they're wanting eternal reward what do what would you say to that objection
5: yeah so it's actually it's very this is a this is a, so I can, have to just launch into a discussion of the gospel here because this is really crucial so I uh years ago now uh my church in New Haven we had a um a class sort of just like exploring Christianity class we met in the bookstore it's really cool actually and uh, we had a great a great pastor um he's now in uh he's actually a pastor of college church in Wheaton which is a pretty big church um his name is Josh Moody but he was great so he taught the class he went to gospel part anyway so teaching this class about Christianity and there are people there that are very new, they were either you know, maybe raised Christians, they were, lost their faith, they were atheists, they weren't sure what they believed. And he was explaining to them how the gospel says that, uh, you know, that God saves us by grace, by grace. That means that nothing that we do can earn uh, forgiveness, can earn our acceptance with God. In fact, that we deserve damnation, we deserve condemnation from God but that because if he because he's good, because he because he's loving, not because we're good, but because God is good, he saves us. And once we have trusted in Jesus, that, that Jesus took our punishment, that he died for us and he rose again for us, when we transfer our trust to Jesus then God is Jesus as if we're totally righteous, we're forgiven, we are given new hearts, we're filled with the spirit, we're, given, we're actually new creations, and that because of that, because because we are ju- because we're justified, that we don't, we don't have to fear hell anymore, that we, we, are, we can be assured that God has forgiven us because he promises, we trust in Christ, and whoever trusts in me has crossed from death to life. I will never cast him out. You will not be judgment. And over and over again, we have, we have peace with God through Christ. So, so my pastor was explaining this. It was, um, this a, a guy and a girl came to class together, and we were friends. He explained the gospel, explained that, you know, the Christians, because we trust, because Jesus came to rescue us and to die for us and to take our punishment. We're totally forgiven. We don't need to be afraid of hell anymore. That, that it's done. Jesus said, it's finished. So this girl you know, raised her hand and said, well, I, I don't get it. You know, if, if Jesus totally forgives us, if God has completely paid for all of our sins, then how can I, you know, how, why, why should I do any good? How, you know, how can, I, how can I, why should I do any good? Why can't I just do however I feel like? Why can't I just, you know, just go kill people and murder people because, you know, I'm, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. And you we know, said, what's my, what's my um, why, how can I be good if, that's, if actually it is true? And I said uh, at the time, I, I said, actually, it's the other way around. You're saying if I believe the gospel, you know, what motivation would I have to be good? I said, you know, until you believe the gospel, you really can't be good. And the, you know, the way I think of that is, uh. If you are doing good only because you fear hell or only because you hope God's going to bless you and reward you or accept you, you know, you're not really doing good just for the sake of doing good. You're not really doing good just because God loves good and because you want to bless, make God happy. You're doing good for you. You're trying to bless you. You think, yeah. I'm afraid of hell. I want heaven. I want these good things. I don't want these bad things. And I'm going to use morality as a tool to manipulate God. And as, you know, so as long as you're locked into this mindset that God you know, curses bad things and he blesses good things, and so because of that, because I fear hell, because I hope to you know, spend eternity strumming a harp or walking on streets of gold, that's why I'm going to do good. If that's your only reason to do good, you're never going to do good because your motivation is always going to be to avoid hell or to earn heaven. It's only when God comes to you and says, you are going, you are, deserve hell, you are deserve punishment, you deserve nothing but wrath. Nothing you do is going to make up for all the terrible things you've done in your life. But Jesus came and was tortured for you. He's cried out for you. He wept for you. He bled for you. He died for you. He rose from the grave for you. And now I completely, if you trust in him, you are forgiven. You are, you are accepted. You are my child. You are going to heaven not because you're good, because I'm good and I've rescued you. When God says that and you believe it, suddenly you say, If I am going to heaven no matter what, in the midst of Jesus' righteousness, or in the midst of his goodness, then you say, Well, what what intended do I have to be good? Because he because you see God's goodness, that's your reason now. Your reason now is well, I see that good is good. I see that God is good and He loves goodness, and now I do it freely. You're not doing it to earn his approval because you have his approval. You're not doing it to escape hell because you've escaped because Jesus released you from hell. So now there's, right. you're not, not saying that Christians can never be motivated by being afraid of hell, can never be motivated by a for reward. That can be part of their motivation. But actually, I think the best motivation of the Christian is that it is now available to you. You can do good purely because you love what's good. You, you, just, you just take pleasure in it and because you know God takes pleasure in it. The, look at the Proverbs. The prophets are full of God's pleasure in just good things, justice, fairness, honesty, peace, uh, holiness, compassion, care for the poor, care for the widows. The Bible is full of God. God just loves those things. So then When you're a Christian, you say, I've been rescued. I've been brought from death to life because Jesus suffered and was tortured and died and wept for me. When you believe that, you then you say, I just want to please him now. And I, and right. I think Christians are never right. motivated by fear, never motivated by, by, by a hopeful reward. Uh, but I think the, the primary motivation of our hearts can be, can be a motivation to, oh, what has God done for me? And how can, that, how can I just out of joy bless him?
2: Yeah, you know, personally, I, and, and I'd like your, your thoughts on this, but I don't think a Christian can do those things unless they're regenerated first. They're not going to love the things of God. They're not going to want to please God. They're not going to want to, uh, you know, do those things. To truly please Christ is is first, it's got to be regenerated. I think it's Romans 8 says, you know, in the flesh, man cannot please God. And in the flesh, we're hostile to God. And by nature, you know, just hateful to God.
5: Yeah, and and I think the the, the interesting, but I think it's important not to, because I think the, the danger sometimes is that we can, um, and the Puritans did this a little bit, but we can make regeneration replace the gospel in the sense that we can basically go to people and preach regeneration. We can say, all right, look, you can't right. be the most regenerate, right? So, so right. I don't know, be regenerate. <laughs> well, what? That's not, that's <laughs> not new. It's, it's nothing. But what you have to preach is Christ crucified. You know, you, you, right. you preach that the gospel. God has done this. And if you, when you trust in that, God then accepts you, receives you, justifies you, and... Regeneration is the work of God. God does it in our hearts. It's something that we do. We don't regenerate ourselves. Uh, at least, in the music, this is all. Right. He uses.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uses the gospel. Is, uses the gospel as the means to do that. Right.
5: Exactly. God. God regenerates through the preaching of the gospel. And so, again, if you're if you're if a not if, a, if someone who's listening to this, is not a Christian, uh, what I would say is, don't. If you don't understand what we're talking about, it's fine. Good. <laughs> we're not interested in you learning about regeneration. Uh, at least, uh, uh, we're interested in you learning about what Jesus has done. Jesus came to save sinners, and that's all of us. That is, he, you know, the Bible says God justifies. I mean, God forgives and accounts as righteous the ungodly. Maybe for this discussion, we'd say God accepts and justifies the atheists, the misotheists, the God-haters, the people who detest God and reject and despise Him. God accepts them. How? Through their trust in Christ. If you, in this moment, are saying, you know what, I don't, I, yeah, you know, I don't, well, I don't like God, I don't, I, I, or, I, or, or maybe it's better. If you're listening tonight and saying, you know what, I, you know, if I believed in God, I would be motivated by fear and by hope. I, I wouldn't be, by hope of a reward. I wouldn't be, I don't just love God. I don't just, you know, love doing good things. That's just not the way my heart works. You know, I'm, I'm messed up. I don't love truth. I don't love helping people. I I find it really hard to think about all the suffering in the world. I want to just play video games. I want to just read magazines. I want to watch movies. I don't want to live a moral life. I don't want to live a sacrificial life. If you're saying all those things, good. That's the way I am too naturally. All of us are like that naturally. That's why Jesus came to die for us. So I think if you're saying... Boy, all this talk about being living for, you know, living, being committed to morality, being committed to truth, being committed to goodness, being committed to God, being fully committed to everything that He commands. I don't think that way. That's exactly right. You're, you're finally thinking rationally for life. Because, and if any, I hope no Christian is thinking, yeah, well, that's the way I thought before I was Christian. Now I, I'm perfect now. I, I, I always, you know, live. Uh, you know, living for goodness, living for God's command. I just say, you know, read Romans seven. You, you, you grasp the depth of our sin. You know, Paul says that I'm convinced there's nothing that good lives, that lives in me that is in my flesh. All of us, Christian, non-Christian, struggle with this sinful nature. The only difference in Christians is that that the sinful nature is in 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 competition, is in a battle with the Holy Spirit. It, for Christians. When, when we trust in Christ, we say, you know what, God, I am a disaster. I am messed up. I am a moral failure. I need you to forgive me and to make me new, and I, I accept what Jesus did for me. That's when God puts a new uh, spirit in your heart. He changes your heart. He transforms you. And from that day on, it's a battle. There is a war going on in you between your old desires and your new nature. And it's going to go on until you die. But the difference is not... So, a Christian is not known by you know, the absence of sin, but by the presence of a battle. Uh, you know, it's not that we're now perfect; it's that, that now there is a battle between good and evil in our hearts. God has planted his spirit in us and says, "And now I'm going to." Uh, there's going to be a war against sin in your life. Um, so, by no means think that we're saying that Christians are perfect, that Christians never sin, that Christians live for holiness and righteousness and truth and goodness and you know, think of every day I've been prayed for three hours about the suffering and gotten, you know, cured lepers and, and he healed the sick. No, you know, we, we should, you know, we definitely should. But that's the problem. That's why Christ died to rescue us because we're so messed up. The best Christian in the whole world still has these parts of darkness and evil in their hearts. That is why we need a Savior who is perfect and blameless.
2: Tell you what, Neil, take. Uh... Take go oh, two three minutes and wrap wrap us up and you know go ahead and tie any loose ends up and leave us some concluding thoughts.
5: Yeah sure um, so I think I think I mean, the gospel that's how I wanted to conclude the, the main thing is the takeaway here is that um, again I'm not saying that atheists cannot be moral and do I'm not even saying that atheists can't value being moral I mean there are atheists there are plenty of atheists out there who like you say I love uh, I really value compassion. I value empathy. I value caring for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. I value for caring for widows and orphans. Uh, you know, I value all of these good things, and that, and things. I'm not saying that you can't value these things. Uh, and in this, tonight, I haven't even argued that, 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 that objective morality, believing that there are good and evil that just exist objectively, they're not just your opinions, they're actually truths, they're moral truths. And tonight, I haven't even argued that's incompatible with atheism. I'm saying let's rant for a second that you you can believe in objective good and evil as an atheist. What I'm arguing tonight is that atheism itself uh, tends to undermine the practice of the commitment to morality. And, and the and the truth I didn't even get into that, I didn't even actually talk about truth and reason. Uh, uh, we talked about a little bit about it last time. But the bottom line is that if you if you are if you don't believe me, if you say, Well, I think he just you know, he, he's full of it. I don't think I think I can be an atheist and still value morality Okay, there are two action steps I'd recommend. Number one is spend half an hour, or just spend 15 minutes every day, 15 minutes, thinking about actual state of the world in its darkest places. And again, uh, you say, well, that's not fair. Well, actually, you know, the darkest places are pretty much everywhere but the U.S. And the U.S. Is, is, relatively speaking, a pretty nice place to live. Now, I'm not saying there are parts that are incredibly dark and sad. There are, even in, in nice, nice, happy places. Um, but I'm just saying... Take the average person living in say the entire continent of Africa. Think about the tragedies that occur on daily. Lives. Listen to the news, but again, don't go for sound bites. Read books about this. Read books about injustice, about suffering, about genocides and the Holocaust. And uh, read, read, read these things. But meditate. Let them affect you. Don't just turn a blind eye on them. Let them sink in. Do it few minutes for every for every day for a month. The other thing you want to think about. Think about the area that you're most tempted in, whether it's money or sex or honesty or something. Some area where you say, this is is a bad thing, but I'm tempted to do it because there are things that I like, like money and sex, but I'm tempted to get them in the wrong way, ways that I know are wrong, and spend another 15 minutes every day thinking about the fact that there's no accountability. When you die, you're going to rot. When everyone else dies, even the person that you wronged, they're going to just rot. No one's looking over your shoulder. You can easily get away with these things you're talking about. Uh, you know, so think about one the actual misery and suffering that goes on in the world. 15 minutes. and Spend 15 minutes thinking about how there are ways that you can sin, you can do evil things, and get and get blessings for yourself, get nice things like money and sex and power. Uh, think about that for 15 minutes a day, and there's no accountability. And I come back to me in a month, and if you, in a month, if you can tell me, uh, I. I'm not miserable. I'm totally fine with that. I'm not hardened at all. I still have a real soft heart for the suffering and, and, and people that are in misery. I, you know, I haven't been changed at all by that, my, my reflection on morality. And number two, I'm also, I'm no more tempted. I have as much strength as I always did to resist temptation, even though there's no accountability. There's no good or evil. There's no justice. There's no final accounting. There's no heaven and hell. If you come back to me after a month and say both of those things, I will stop using this argument. But my, I really think, well, i, I think. To it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think they call those people sociopaths <laughs> that don't have any, uh, you know, feelings of, uh, you know, don't care about those that that type of, of suffering. I don't. I don't think you know. It's it's like you say. You know, how anybody could just really think on those things and not just be radically, radically altered is beyond me. And I just think everybody is. And they're trying to explain it. Every worldview has to try and explain it somehow. But, Well, Dr. Yes, Chimby, I want to thank you for okay. – oh, go, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off there.
5: I, also, I want to suggest that – although I haven't actually argued that Christianity is true. In this talk, I haven't said anything about Christianity being true. I'm just saying that atheism is not livable. But here's where I want to bring this in. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Christianity can allow you to do both of those things? Well, atheism cannot. Atheism can. Atheism, uh, Christianity can let you reflect on morality. It can let you reflect on good and evil and face temptation and not become hardened and not lose hope and not become depressed and be stronger against temptation, and, and it can do all of those things. Isn't that odd? If you're an atheist, think, isn't it strange that a worldview that I think is false but provides a better uh, – actually, it's, it's, more, it's livable in a way that atheism is not? i said leave you with that. You should at least question, isn't it strange that Christianity is so consistent And yet atheism is not. Uh, So it has sort of, I think, bug us a little
2: bit. That's why I want to finish. All right. Well, Dr. Shenvey, we want to thank you for coming on the show. And I look forward to having you on again sometime in the future. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, you know, folks, just so people know, you know, the show, we do the show for free. We don't make a dime on the show. And people like Dr. Shenvey and others who come on, they're they're giving up their time freely. They're not making a dime doing this. So he's he's the real deal. I mean, he means what he says. He really cares about people and cares about truth and cares about getting the gospel out. So that's, you know, we're not making money on this, so that's for sure. <laughs> but thanks again, Dr. Shenvey, for coming on, and look forward to having you on again in the future.
5: Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me, Dan.
2: All right, and uh, just so people know, I was going to throw this out there too, there uh, is going to be a debate tonight with uh, on Alpha and Omega uh, Ministries. Uh, James White is going to be hosting a debate with uh, Sam Waldron and uh, Michael Brown on the uh, gifts, whether or not the gifts of the Spirit have ceased or if the gifts of the Spirit are still for today. So if you go over to uh, Alpha and Omega Ministries, you can hear that debate. should be starting uh, right now, actually. If not, I'm sure it will be podcasted and you can hear it. So take time to check that debate out. It's always a fun time to listen to two scholars kind of discuss some of these ideas and think deeper on these issues. So we will be back again next week. We're going to be looking at Christian uh, counseling with our good friend uh, Mike Koslinski. So thanks for tuning in, and God bless.